Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. Uh, once again, I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rickabenny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, and I'm also CLEAR's President-Elect. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is a chance for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Before we get started on that, I did briefly want to say that um, today we were able to have our first in-person meetings uh, in the last three years. So we did open up some meetings today in Raleigh for investigator training, and I had the great privilege of going and speaking to those individuals to start that and welcome them back. So this is exciting. This is the first step I think that CLEAR needs to make in in getting back into our face-to-face meetings. Now today, we're going to be talking about social media policies and regulating licensees' use of social media. This is a very big buzz topic uh, that always comes up. Our guests today have all worked on developing social media policies. Joining us today, we have Andrew Charnock. He is the Chief Executive and Registrar with the Occupational Therapy Board of New Zealand. Nancy Spector, Director of Regulatory Innovations with National Council on State Boards of Nursing. And Lise uh, Betteridge, the uh, Registrar and CEO of the Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers. Uh, So we're glad to have all three of you with us here today. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Mm-hmm. Well, we're certainly glad to speak to you. And, and let me first also thank our listeners for joining us today. So we're talking about regulating licensees or registrants' use of social media. As I mentioned earlier, this comes up often as a topic of interest in our stakeholder surveys. So we have asked members of CLEAR communities what questions they'd like addressed in t- today's podcast. And I'll be honest, we got some really great questions back. So many, in fact, that we decided to extend this discussion into a follow-up webinar to really dive deeper into some of the more philosophical aspects of the topic. So stay tuned for more information on that. But today, on today's podcast, we'll focus on some of the more foundational questions. So to start us off, can you all provide some perspective on the question, why develop a social media policy? And I'm going to shoot it off to, to you, Andrew, first. Thank you, Ian. Um, I think it's um, a, a basically a sign of the times uh, and the need to adjust uh, to contemporary practice, uh, social norms that are happening um, across society. Um, I think it's helpful to provide advice and guidance to practitioners on what expected standards would be around the use of, of social media. Um, and the connectivity that a policy on social media has with other pieces of, of uh, guidance that's produced by a, a regulator, such as um, codes of ethics, codes of conduct. It's also important that the uh, public have information about what is expected from those, from practitioners. And lastly, I think it, it it provides a matrix or a measure by which complaints once received can be measured. So that's probably the main thrust of why we have developed a social media policy. 
Well, in nursing, um, you know, all of those things definitely apply. I think, though, um, the biggest thing for us is protecting the public um, because of violating privacy and confidentiality. A lot of times the employee policies look at using social media only in the workforce. And so the regulator policies look at it outside of the work place. And we really need, um, we really needed a policy to explain to nurses the differences between confidentiality and privacy. You know, they're very related concepts, but they do have, they are distinct. So um, confidentiality really is protecting the patient's information, like their lab values, and that doesn't, you know, get put on social media. Whereas privacy is a little more broad of that patient's right to dignity and respect. For example, making fun of patients on social media. Um, there was an incident where um, nurses actually posted on Facebook a shot, um, a gunshot wound to the face of the patient those kinds of things. Um, and then of course, in the United States, we have uh, the HIPAA, which is an act, again, that protects patient privacy and hospitals or other facilities can be in violation of that. So, um, you know, there's a, a variety of reasons, but I think in nursing, probably those are the, the two biggest protecting um, privacy and confidentiality. And I think what, what I would add, what uh, Andrew and Nancy have, have already said so well is, you could almost restate the question and say, how could you not develop a social media policy? Because social media has impacted us all. It's changed the landscape for all of us, both in our professional and our personal lives. And this is a great example of how, in order to be relevant and responsive as regulators, we need to provide some guidance to members um, uh, or registrants or licensees in relation to, to um, this incredibly important uh, force in our society. Um, I, I, I think, um, you know, we've taken the approach, we don't actually call our uh, social media policies policies, um, but they that that is what they are. They're really guidance for members in using their professional judgment to interpret how the standards of practice apply to this um, very these very particular and often very challenging scenarios because sometimes I think we found that members have difficulty making that link between the two things and you're not going to be updating your your standards of practice constantly in order to be responsive to whatever new new uh, social media platform is available or new behavior because I'm sure all of us have been in that situation where we've we said uh, wow, I never would have thought of that. So um, nothing but social media really does that quite so well. And I really just wanted to highlight, I think there are two levels of social media um, policies that, that impact or that we refer to at, at our uh, college or our, our regulator. And that is, first of all, our guidance to members in interpreting the standards um, that's additional to or interpreting the uh, standards of practice and the code of ethics. But then we also have um, the uh, social media policies that members themselves may develop. So that's sort of the subcontent. So we encourage um, all of our members in their practice to look 
look at the advantage of having social media policy so they can be clear, transparent, and part of informed consent, ensure that they're, the public that they serve is, is aware of what their practices will be. And I, I think that's a really important element. But I also wanted to just briefly come back to the whole idea of the public and that it's so important for the public to know what the expectations are of our um, uh, members or registrants or licensees. Well, that makes real good sense, Lisa. I, I like that. Um, I think, you know, I remember being a part of a, uh, a social media presentation we did uh, for CLEAR in uh, New Orleans many years ago. And, you know, one of the topics, and I'm sure we will touch on freedom of speech issues, uh, you know, this, this afternoon as well. Um, but sometimes even um, by not putting too many restrictions on and letting people do what they do on social media may be uh, helpful to the patient in determining who, if, if we're looking at a patient from a healthcare side, uh, who they want to see and who they don't want to see. Um, so it, it is an interesting area. I guess, so maybe going back to you, uh, what would you say the key elements of a social media policy for licensee would be? And also, I like the word guidelines. I thought that was also a brilliant um, term as well. But um, what would you say you know, some of the key elements are? Uh, so, I mean, I think there, there is lots that a social media policy should address in, in terms of helpful guidance. So I think um, it should be really clear in our case that it's still the standards of practice that ultimately guide members practice and that would be used um, if there were ever concerns about the conduct of members in, in the form of a complaint or a matter going to discipline. Um, but I think, you know, beyond that piece of information, I think boundaries, the, the discussion about the difference between professional and personal, because I, I think as we may get into there's it's not a given that just because you've posted something on your personal social media you're that's fine and you can do whatever personally um i think it's really important to highlight that uh all of our members and regulated professionals generally are in a position of huge um um power, uh, authority and influence. And so therefore this, this does uh, impact their use of social media. And it's quite possible that some, some have not necessarily considered that because they see it as kind of separate. And so um, th they really need to consider this issue of, uh, of professional integ integrity. There's the issue of, of the risks and the benefits um, Nancy, you've already spoken about confidentiality and privacy. I'd say that's incredibly important. One thing we've emphasized is competence. Um, you know, it um, some of the the uh, complaints that we've received or, or errors sometimes relate to a lack of understanding of privacy settings, for example. So just the basics. And if you're going to be a professional practicing now, you need to be competent. Um, and, you know, I would say those are probably the main areas. I'm sure Nancy and Andrew have more to add. I, th I think from, from our perspective, when I, when I saw the sort of podcast around social media, and certainly our guide, guidelines going beyond the concept of social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, but it's all forms of electronic communication uh, that... Um, you know, causes practitioners to stumble and make errors uh, in what they're saying, uh, whatever platform um, they use. So um, I think it's a conversation for another time, I'm sure, to extend 
out, you know, from social media and social platforms to other forms of electronic communication. And our guidelines do mention uh, things like Facebook, LinkedIn, but also texting uh, and emails. Uh, you know, a, a pretty, you know, a pretty um, relevant today uh, on people's ability to communi communicate and in communicate with speed too. And when you have speed, you get errors uh, and people's reaction almost immediately have access to a, a, a range of platforms where they can express their views without, you know, putting the filter on. Um, and being you know, aware of other issues like confidentiality, dignity that, that others have, uh, have mentioned. Um, but there's also the connection, you know, what should be in a, um, a social media policy. It is around, for me uh, and our organization, it's staying live to what's happening. So these, these um, social media guidelines are really need to be organic and move as you know, um, applications move and people find different ways of actually expressing their views on different platforms. Uh, and it's also a need to keep a check on the connection to other legislation and other organizations who have jurisdiction in this area, such as a privacy commissioner, um, uh, and other um, structures within a sort of um, within a legislative frame, framework that actually do come into play, and that social media guidelines need to make practitioners and the public aware that these other um, organisations do do exist, um, and you know the, the facility within. Um, Employers now, I, I guess many employers have a whistleblowing policy. And so there's an opportunity when people are exercised by what is going wrong and the need to shout about it, there is an opportunity to, to, to um, take a route that the good employers should have around a sort of whistleblowing policy so that it doesn't so the person feels that the only way that they can get their voice heard or things that are wrong corrected is through a social media platform. Well, and my colleagues did a great job in talking about the principles of the guidelines themselves. Um, and certainly the same thing at NCSBN, um, you know, that we take into uh, consideration that you do. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit, uh, take a little bit of a different stance and what should be in these guidelines um, in terms of introducing them um, and what our uh, licensees need to know. For example, they need to know the reason why, just like we were asked at the beginning, why do you need these? And we needed to, we knew we needed to emphasize that we didn't want to bar them from social media, that it's really very important to their practice. And then we felt we needed to have some definitions. What is confidentiality, privacy? What are what is HIPAA? What does that mean? And what are the applicable laws as um, Andrew had referred to and these as well? Um, and then what about the consequences. Um, you know, what are the 
violations involved and, and what are some of the state and federal laws? Um, and I remember my boss saying, you've got to put in there someplace that there could be jail time and there could be, it could be criminal as well as regulatory. And then um, we thought it was really important as we're introducing these guidelines to give the common myths. Um, for example, um, no information can actually be deleted from social media. Um, people don't realize that. And it is discoverable by um, a court of law if it has been deleted. And then we you know, um, went with the guidelines that principles were great um, that they talked about. And then we ended, and um, I, I think this was my favorite part, with six cases. And we tried to illuminate in those cases what um, you know was violated in terms of the social media guidelines. I, I think I'd, I'd echo that, Nancy. I think that's really important to, to have um, a case examples and that's what we've got in our, our guidelines so it brings uh, it brings the thing into context and brings it alive uh, for the reader when they we're trying to understand some of the concepts which can be difficult to um to understand on occasion yeah so good good examples really drive the the message home i feel mm -hmm. And I, I find that really interesting because because our, our guidance, which we actually call practice notes, also includes scenarios. And I think that that just goes to show that that, you know, when you're trying to make the link between the standards of practice versus these particular scenarios, you know, I, I think I said at the beginning, people have trouble making that link, but a scenario really brings it to life. And it could highlight those really key issues, as you said, like that are related to judgment professional judgment, impulsivity of the communication, you know, nine times out of 10, and, um, and um, competence sometimes. Oh, I didn't know that if I um, sent all these texts to a client, they would, uh, <laughs> might, might be able to be seen later, for example. <laughs> no, I, th I think that's brilliant, uh, the use of examples on that. That's one of the first things when I became uh, the chief compliance officer here is I, I put together a, a social media policy and, and used examples because coming from regulation, when I first started with the North Carolina Dental Board, I remember a board member sitting down and speaking with me about how, how important and how much of a representative I was. I was the face, if you would, of, of the board because I was the one that was going out into the public on a regular basis, but that didn't extend to just working hours. Um, that that while I was still a representative of the state, even when I wasn't working, um, they didn't give a lot of example on that, but I took that to heart. And so that when I became, you know, the chief compliance officer here, that was one of the things I wanted to build some examples on. So often these violations, if you would, um, are, are not done in malice. It's, it's, a lot of times it's, it's, it's lack of understanding or knowledge. Right, that they release some type of information or take a picture of something that they think is okay to post on social media because that's what people do now. I mean, they take pictures of their foods and their drink and any other interaction they have. This is how they connect with other individuals. Their, their thought process is not looking at protecting patient privacy or, uh, or what information could be, be presented. So I think when you think about these types of, of policies and guidelines, uh, what can you consider concerning uh, enforceability of these policies? 
Um, and, you know, I'm sure we, we've got a lot of different perspectives and, and different, you know, countries here. So the legal framework will certainly be different. But, you know, how do we enforce these things? Well, in the United States, um, our, we have encouraged our um, nursing boards to have regulations that they can use to enforce. And we found at the beginning, when we started looking at this in 2010 or so, that many of the boards didn't really see a way of enforcing them. So um, there are regulations, for example, for uh, unprofessional conduct, which is has been have been used a lot, unethical conduct, breach of confidentiality, revealing privileged information, et cetera. And so that's how we've encouraged our boards to enforce them. Hmm. Yep, I'll, I'll follow on from Nancy's comments. And in New Zealand, we've probably got um, in a unique position, particularly for health practitioners. We have one piece of legislation, the Health, pra the health Practitioners Competence Assurance Act, which covers all the health professions uh, in uh, New Zealand. So that, that allows us to look at the legislation and to use the legislation when things go wrong. And so uh, when issues appear on social media that cause into question uh, the conduct, competence, or sometimes the health of a practitioner, which can be sort of picked up from from the postings that they make uh, there is a there is a a number of pathways within the legislation uh, that we can take um, and many of the regulators uh, health regulators in New Zealand operate a, a right touch approach to these things too so it is a sort of um, approach which is you know that the the response is proportionate to the issues that you're you're facing and and so almost lends itself to a rehabilitative approach um, to um, some of the issues that we are seeing practitioners post on social media so that learning takes place and we've had people coming through a professional conduct committee having posted inappropriate things in response to some you know some uh, some very emotive and emotional uh, actions that have taken place and take a place across the world, you know, shootings, etc., mass shootings, which we we had here in, in Christchurch. Uh, and people feel angry and want to make a response to that. And a practitioner did just that. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 you have to consider the context in which these people are working too, and what light that shines on their professional practice, but the, their, their sort of philosophy and approach to care. So any client seeing that remark may think, well, I'm not going to that service uh, to, to receive um, help and advice. So the, the person did go through a professional conduct committee hearing and came out to the other end requiring the professional conduct committee can set um, the requirements, recommendations or determinations of what should happen. And what happened was a period of counselling for this person. So again, a real, rehab, an insight, a true insight into, into you know, what the person had said on social media and ways of managing outbursts like that for the, for the future. So that was a real 
rehabilitative approach. There are other structures in place too in New Zealand, such as the Health and Disability Commissioner, which has um, a list of uh, a code of patient rights. And so, you know, those can be breached and the Health and Disability Commissioner uh, can find a breach in, in the code, not only for individuals, but also for organisations. And that covers all health and disability services, regardless of whether they're regulated or not. And then, of course, like many other countries, I guess, we have the Privacy Commissioner. Uh, when things do appear in public and people's privacy has been breached. And we've, we've had episodes of that um, too. And, you know, as an organisation, we have a Facebook page and a LinkedIn page. We have to be super careful about how we, what we put on there and how we use it. So social media applies to, you know, the regulators as much as it does to, to those people we regulate too. Thank you. I really um, wanted to pick up on what you were saying about a rehabilitative approach, uh, Andrew, as well, because I think um, I sort of like to think about what we uh, do in regulating our members is to move from the proactive to the reactive. And at the proactive end, that's where I would put the um, various practice resources to support the vast majority of members who practice ethically and professionally, you know, what do they need? Um, and I think the practice, um, well, our practice guidelines, our standards of practice, and, and the, the um, practice notes that I referred to specifically on, on social media play a really important role in that so that they understand. So we identify concerns and issues at that end rather than waiting until they come through to a screening committee as either a report or a mandatory report or a complaint. But even at that stage, um, you know, when um, let's say a matter, there are options for um, education, for potentially supervision, for further, um, um, yeah, further supervision or education or, or learning, you know, both formal and informal. And then after that, you know, the, the most serious matters being referred to, to a discipline committee who ultimately decides, I don't think there's an issue with the standards of practice being applicable um, because we, we have standards of practice that address the broad themes that come up in social media. So confidentiality, record keeping. I think one thing we didn't even discuss uh, yet because there's so much to say, but, you know, some people are confused. They think that if they're uh, communicating electronically, that's the that's the the clinical record, or that's the record of the the in our case social work or social service work service, which clearly it's not. So, um, but competence and integrity, lots in there that apply to these uh, social media kinds of of uh, situations. So, um, but I. I I very much support that. I think we have a responsibility as regulators to, to try to put our efforts into the proactive end as much as possible. Of course, we have an important role at the reactive end as well. Right. And I'd like to follow up on something um, that Andrew said too, and that's the right touch regulation. And I'm really excited about the webinar because we're going to have actual cases there. But there have been, um, you know, so many cases in the um, 
the nursing regulatory bodies that I've been really proud of in terms of the actions that the regulatory bodies have taken. And in one instant, instance, they didn't only, um, they sent a letter of reprimand to the nurse, but they also contacted the medical board because the physician had sent the order to her uh, personal phone and said, you need to follow up on this. And then they sent a letter also to the public health department and saying, you need to follow up with this agency and they shouldn't be using personal phones for orders. So I think those kinds of um, actions that the regulatory bodies take, you know, they really have to take into account everything that is involved and not just, you know, what that one nurse did or other um, health professionals. Yeah, I just want to just add a thought about social media and what um, practitioners of those people, licensees we, we regulate. It, it does provide a window into their world of, of how they see their practice and what concerns them about practice. So, you know, we talked about being reactive to things that come to us because of, uh, of problems identified or what people are saying on social media. But they also said they say probably good things as well. And I wonder how many of us actually do look at social media to get a take the temperature of the profession uh, and you know use our own social media platform such as Facebook and LinkedIn for people to be able to express what they're what they're feeling in a medium they're very comfortable in doing so you know there's it, it's a two-way street really uh, around that and maybe there's some missed opportunities around and being more reactive and understanding uh, the areas where licensees uh, are working. Andrew, I think that's um, actually just made me think of the fact that because we we operate in a title protection framework, we have um, it's very important that that our college engage with employers uh, of social workers and social service workers. So we have both a public awareness campaign and an employer awareness campaign, um, and they're very focused on um, our regulatory mandate, not obviously promoting the the professions. But that's an area that are online advertising. Um, uh, on social media. And so it does provide a little bit of that window that you're talking about and the kinds of comments and not, not to mention just the regular, I mean, I'm sure you all remember when we all first started considering social media use as regulators. And I remember someone making the joke to me once about that slide with all the social media platforms. Fortunately, we don't put that up anymore because we've long passed that point, but... <laughs> does make me laugh. <laughs> right. I, I remember when we started as well working on our guidelines and we thought, well, maybe these just happened at a couple of the boards of nursing and not at all around. So we did a survey and we were just amazed to find out, you know, the majority had had major complaints and that's what got us down this journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it certainly is, is one of those things. And I think uh, that you know, Andrew kind of spiked in my, my memory. Sometimes it's, it's not just responding to negative things. Sometimes it can be positive things. And, and all of a sudden uh, people are revealing more information that they shouldn't reveal because, you know, a patient or somebody posted something positive And then, you know, we take that as an affirmation and one of, you know, well, well, thank you for your kind words. It was great seeing you as a patient as well. And there's all of a sudden a violation because we confirmed that they were seen there. So, 
Um, it's interesting. One thing that was brought up, and I think this was brought up on our clear communities to kind of take this to another level, but if the regulated member doesn't actually use their title, doctor, whatever it is, um, doesn't show that they're a professional in their social media posts or their profile, do you still have a mandate to regulate? You know, what if this is a small community where that person may be known as a regulated professional, whether they put their title out there or not? Um, how do you handle that? Well, I'm a, I might jump in to say, um, you know, I think this is probably more true than not, and that I, you know, our our guidance would be that that um, our members need to be very careful about this, that there is privilege um, that comes along with being a regulated professional and uh, it's a position of power and influence, as I think I said at the beginning. And so there are certain things that the reality is that regulated professionals, you know, in our view and, uh, you know, might have to give up. So that might be sometimes the freedom to post whatever that might um, you know, reflect negatively um, on, the, on the profession. So I, I think you can't, I think it's important that members know that they, it's not total freedom to post whatever just because it's a, a personal um, post. Right. And, you know, even in, you know, I'm from Chicago, even in Chicago, there are small communities around. It's very easy to figure out that the person posting um, is a licensed nurse or whatever um, profession. And so, you know, generally, no, it isn't okay to post about patients, even if you don't talk about what your um, license is, um, because you just never know. Hmm. I, I think, um... Uh, my own profession in nursing, which, you know, I started in the 70s, there was very much uh, a feeling that the professions were a calling, a vocation uh, that you were called to do. And with that sort of philosophy and idea comes maybe some very Victorian standards uh, and understanding about behaviour. Uh, and what is, you know, ethical. So it's, as I said, I think at the very start, uh, social media guidelines, policies or whatever, and the need to respond are a sign of the times. You know, people are changing and the way they interact with each other and the, what they post on social media these days would, would never have been uh, acceptable, you know, in, in the 70s uh, when I was uh, when I was nursing. Uh, so things things have changed around, you know, what is what constitutes a profession and what constitutes a professional. You know, freedom freedom of speech um, and you know the right to 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 argue a point which you feel is affecting, you know. A, a, a number of people and when then somebody gives you a platform or, or or a chair to stand on to shout about that such as a social media platform you will get people in this day and age taking that opportunity and and, and raising their voice on on that platform but it, it, i guess it comes back to the standing of the profession within the community and within the society that, that they work 
Um, and there is a measure to take on that, I think, that if I say this on my Facebook page, uh, page what will think people think of me and what will people think of the standing and reputation of, of, of the profession? Um, that, that, you know, the Victorian attitude and, the, the, you know, the philosophy about being um, uh, some professions being a calling um it, it is changing um you know and people some people today seem that they've got a high degree of self-entitlement to say the things that they want to say and give them a platform uh to say it onto and you know in new zealand there are five million people there are just over three thousand occupational therapists and people do know one, one another uh, through those sorts of, you know, the, when, you, when you talk about those, those numbers, really, yeah. So maybe the size of it actually curtails some of that activity. I don't know. And the larger, the larger organisations with the larger licensees can hide uh, easier. When you talk about changing times, Andrew, I think that really raises the complexity of the issue because there are certain things that, that continue to hold true about being a regulated professional. And, and there are other things that may be shifting and it's, it, it, it's um, tricky to uh, sort out which is which. And, and I think, you know, sometimes um, it's, it's really important for there to be a pause on the part of our members to consider that really carefully. And sometimes by the time they pause, they've paused, maybe the impulse is, is gone. And maybe that's some of what our role is as a regulator is right. to say, you know, you're a professional, you're required to use your professional judgment in every interaction. And that includes personal and professional. And so pause <laughs> and think about it. There might not always be a super clear answer. No, the sort of education to educate, you know, the undergraduate programs that produce professionals, that idea of what it means to be a professional needs to be, you know, unpacked in, in, uh, for the undergraduate programs. And, you know, what, what, does, what does ethical practice mean? Um, yeah, so I shouldn't forget, but, you know, uh, there's, there's that opportunity too to, to look at it there. I was just going to say this question, especially um, was brought up during the pandemic um, in terms of people going out and and spreading misinformation. And we uh, had a lot of complaints about that throughout all of our boards of nursing and to the point that we had to put out a separate policy statement in terms of spreading misinformation. So um, it's just, I, I think, um, a very important question. And I think all professionals have to be very careful about um, what they're posting and, and, you know, considering that it is recognized that they are licensed um, for the most part, no matter if you live in small um, New Zealand or, you know, 250 million or however many people we have. Um, it's, you know, there's small communities. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's similar, I guess, to, to what I initially started with talking about with, you know, when I started on the board with the, with the no board, um, you know, the conversation about being a, you know, a professional at all times. And this was obviously before Facebook, um, you know, and, and it'll be interesting to see what the next 
iteration of this is after we go through social media, because there'll be something else down the road that will show a window, if you would, into the uh, the personal life of practitioners and professionals. Um, you know, so it, it'll be interesting. Um, another question that was posed um, on clear communities is how do you monitor the social media of your registrant? You know, does your board actively monitor social media accounts? Do you just respond to complaints? Do you use technology um, to monitor? Is AI involved in here? You know, um, what other, and another member on Clear Communities asked if this technology is able to access social media sites that that person has also made private. So I guess as we uncover new issues to examine, are there ways to examine them that we don't know about? Well, I might just jump in to say we don't use AI or monitor our members' social media. We we would um, we would respond to reports, for example, that might be something that comes to our attention through the media um, or through an employer or through another uh, member of the college. But but mainly, we we would be responding to complaints and reports that we receive. Yeah, the same. The same for us, Lucy. That that that's comes to our attention. We don't monitor. Um, we have our own Facebook, of course, and we have settings on there that uh, doesn't allow people just to post on there without our our knowledge. So you know we have that sort of uh, function, and that that exists on a number of platforms, as I as I understand it. But um, I did look to see whether there was any software available that would allow that sort of monitoring activity. Um, and I couldn't find any that, um, that's available to, to monitor that. It's a bit 1984, but, um, <laughs> uh, but we're, we're not doing, we're not going, imagine doing that. Yeah. <laughs> we are watching you, by the way, yes. Yeah. That would go over extremely well, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would, yes. We're, we're being we're being covert about it, so don't worry. <laughs> well, in the United States, it's the same thing. Um, we have over five million nurses, and that would be a job in itself to monitor all of their social media. So we rely on complaints. Our boards do get a lot of complaints. Our guidelines have really helped. Um, we have no. We've tried to widely disseminate them as well. We've noticed that there are fewer complaints. I remember once my boss said, "You'll know that they worked if you have no complaints." We will never have no complaints, but you know the boards of nursing don't have quite as many as they used to have, but the complaints, you know, when Andrew talks about changing times, the complaints have changed as well. And, you know, a major complaint now is patients videotaping nurses. And then, you know, they see other patients in that video and that isn't really a HIPAA violation because it's not a healthcare professional doing it. Um, so um, definitely the complaints change, but, um, Hopefully, if you have really good guidelines and policies, they will decrease some and a good education of nurses. Or well, anecdotally, I'll, I'll mention that I do know many boards, um, regulatory agencies, when they get a complaint that's not social media related, 
will actually at that point in time check social media things to see other things. So yeah. uh, I don't know if you guys do that as well, but I do know that there are boards that are doing that just from my conversations over the years. Um, that's, you know, I mean, we certainly do that when we're trying to hire somebody. Um, you put in a job application, and one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at what you're posting on social media because that gives us a little bit of an eye into the window that we don't see on the resume paper. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for that. Well, let's. Uh, here's a question related to licenses, freedom of speech. So I kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, you know, when someone is uh, someone has posted this on on Clear Communities, but should should social media policies cover reviews or testimonials, whether they're done via social media or review platforms? Now, I'd just be just some clarity around testimonials because um, there is. So, well, there are guidelines around uh, advertising uh, and what professions can can do when they're advertising or seeking testimonials. And I know that some regulators in New Zealand have actually identified that there, you know, people shouldn't be putting testimonials on their their um, organisational sites or or of their Facebook pages. Uh, this one's this freedom of speech is is not easy to respond to, and it really depends on, on the context. And until these issues are tested, usually through either our own systems or through uh, of the more formal uh, jurisdictional system, it's hard to give an answer. So it's a changing, a changing platform, a changing um, view on, on freedom of speech um, and, and you know the rights around that. And, you know, like many countries, New Zealand has got uh, laws related to the freedom of speech through the Bill of, Bill of Rights Act. And it, it does identify the right to freedom of expression, but a freedom subject to reasonable limits prescribed by the law. So you can't just say what you like and be damned. There, there are repercussions to that. Um, so and it, it is tested against what is accepted in society. And, uh, you know, society is changing. Times are changing. So, you know, what people talk about today on social media would not have been something we talked about 10, 10 years ago. And the, you know, the legal frameworks and the systems do take time to catch up <laughs> with, with, with social um, what are becoming social norms now. Um, yeah. And the other piece of legislation we have that comes into play is the Harmful Digital Communications Act. Uh, so that act is there for the purpose of deterring, prevent and, and mitigate harm caused by in, individuals on, you know, uh, putting digital communication out there. And that covers a whole myriad of things other than Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. Um, and you know, proceedings can take place under that piece of legislation. And the uh, <laughs> New Zealand has a, um, an organisation that is separate from government, and it's called NetSafe, which is an organisation that receives complaints. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's hard position i'm sorry that's not a cast iron response <laughs> because i can't i can't give one because yeah. of the you know the changing changing landscape all the time and that sounds like i'm flipping things 
uh, and being a very good politician, but that's that's not, that's not the case. It is it is a difficult one to grapple with, and until we get some uh, landmark decisions or some pegs in the sand, then you know we're, we're going to struggle with with coming and understanding this. Yeah. Yeah, I think, Line, if you were to have a theme for this podcast, it would be the changing times. Um, absolutely, as Andrew says, because I, I was just thinking about this question as well. And um, it really, I think it, it shows that it needs to be reviewed, any of the guidelines by attorneys um, in terms of that whole freedom of speech. And I remember back in 2010, when we did our guidelines, we did not do that. Um, they were not reviewed by our attorneys. But certainly we would today. So I agree with Andrew. It is kind of changing and it's a very hard question um, to answer. I think in terms of, you know, looking at testimonials, et cetera, again, we saw some of this during the the um, pandemic, and um, I, I would say probably not, because you really need to stick with that um, that patient protection, patient confidentiality, ethical, um, and uh, you know, depending on what the testimonial was, um, you just have to be very careful that um, you know you're treading very well and evidence based, etc. So. Um, yeah, it's a it's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. I, I I would just add. I mean, I think in in the sort of overarching complexity of this issue, Andrew and Nancy, you've both put it so well. You know, there are so many considerations in the broad freedom of speech. So to get very nitty gritty about it, I think in terms of testimonials, our standards of practice specifically address testimonials. But there's some complexity around what actually is a testimonial when you get into social media, and also the members. Uh, ability to control that. And I think the way we've handled it and the way the, um, well, our, both our standards of practice, but the way we would handle it in terms of our uh, practice guidance is you still have a responsibility to be aware of the information and to take reasonable steps to remove information that isn't in compliance with the standards. So, but I, I would say that the whole challenge is around the whole challenge around testimonials isn't a new issue, even with the increased, incredibly exponentially increased use of social media. Challenges around testimonials and why they might be problematic are not at all a new thing for us and I would guess not for others and really I think that does come down to the misinformation that gets um, you know um, it puts the client in a very difficult position so it really potentially uh, that that the even the professional may not be aware of and I think members have a responsibility to ensure that every decision they make comes down to the best interest of the client not what's going to benefit their practice or their business or themselves personally. So again, it's that judgment issue. I'd, I'd just like to add the, the uh, another um, area that perhaps needs to be considered is the governing board. I think all three of us are, are speaking from an operational perspective and the people that set a, a strategy or a, a belief system of mission or vision of an organization is the governing board. So it really does um, depend on who's gathered around the governing table uh, around things like social social media. So if you've got people 
that are over 50, um, and that's you know the average age of a, a governing board, their view and ideas about um, what should and shouldn't be on social media will very be very different to a 20, 30 year old. And you know, we take our measure and we take our direction from you know the governing boards of various organizations. And so, you know, that's that's uh, that's something else I think that you know we need to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. Great point. I'll just go ahead and say on the record, I'm glad that there's not a lot of video evidence of me growing up. So <laughs> Well, I think this has been a great start to the conversation. Uh, there's a lot of things to consider and an ever-changing landscape around social media and balancing licensees' rights and their responsibilities. It's been great to have uh, your perspective today on this podcast. So thank you, Nancy, Lee, um, and Andrew for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And it has been our pleasure. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in for this episode. As I mentioned earlier, there's still a lot to discuss on this topic, and our speakers will be presenting a panel discussion via webinar soon, so, uh, where they'll have the opportunity to discuss the public's expectations versus licensees' expectations when using social media, the concept of freedom of speech, and whether that applies to licensees, especially when using social media as a platform for activism, and whether social media usage should be covered under a professionalism standard or a uh, code of conduct. So they'll also discuss some recent cases um, and their implications. Uh, so we uh, hope you can join us for that webinar. And we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. If you're new to the Clear podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free to also visit us on our website, which is www.clearhq.org for additional resources and a calendar of upcoming online programs and in-person events. Finally, I'd like to thank our Clear staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. She is our content coordinator and editor for this program. Once again, I'm Lyne Debsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.